0: Time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the
1: greater groove.
0: And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. This is the place where we talk to all the cool kids about how they do the cool stuff they do in the string world. And I got one of the coolest of the cool kids. I am so grateful to Curtis Stewart for being here today, giving me some of his very precious time. This is one busy guy.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. So welcome to the show, man.
1: Glad thank to have you here. Thank you. Thank here. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to be too much of a cool cat by <laughs> with my schedule uh. and all that, but thank you for having me. I'm so, so happy to yeah. be here. Yeah, man. And uh, I'm going to, for,
0: for the few people in the string world who may not have memorized your bio uh, and be uh, super familiar with your work, How can I describe Curtis Stewart? First of all, I could not do it in one sentence because this is (laughs) you are probably one of the most genre-busting musicians that I know. There's really no way that I could say you are just a classical musician, just a jazz musician, just a hip-hop musician. You are all of those things, and that's one of the things that I love about your music, your approach to your Mm. records, to the public quartet. Uh, it's just omnivorous and uh, and experimental and free as a bird, uh, mm. and I just totally appreciate that oh, about thank your you. work. Yeah, man, the Public Quartet, which you right. founded, you were a founding sure. member of, yeah. uh, back in twenty ten, I believe. That's right. So yes. it's been around for a while. Three records in. That's Amazing. Right. Oh, wow,
1: look at this. this. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of heart and soul went into those three. Yes. Uh, the first one was us kind of. Just figuring out what we were doing is called Public Quartet, just straight up. Um, and we had some of our um, emerging composers. We had an emerging composer competition called Public Access. And so we had several of those composers on there, some new improvised works that we did some pieces combining Charlie Parker and Claude Debussy uh, called Bird in Paris. <laughs> and yep. yeah, and then um, another one with Thelonious Monk and Stravinsky. Um, called uh, epistrophe, but that that was broken up into three words. Epistrophe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then freedom and faith was our second album um all women from across the eras that was our first grammy nominated album and then more recently was what is american where we had this we recomposed the entire dvorak american quartet and that was that was really a labor of love i mean we'd been playing that piece since 2017 and we just recorded it about a year or two ago and There's a lot of love that went into it just because we kept every time we played it and we're improvising through it, we peeled back more and more layers of the influence of Dvorak and his, you know, where he was, you know, getting his um, influence from like Negro spirituals and Native American folk songs and all that type of thing, and really trying to pull away from the Czech influence and uh, reaffirm the trajectory of where the influences ended up going in America. Yeah. Um, So that that was really, and the implication of that. Yeah. Where you know who gets to define what is American classical music. Yeah. So that was a massive labor of love. Yeah.
0: Story and how much pushback he got mm. when he was telling the kind of the classical world in the states that hey your music comes from from the black culture
1: right and everyone was like no no right like, and then, hey, then- yeah because <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is and he was right, right. <laughs> well I have a theory that there's yeah there's no music there's no American music without the blues that's my theory like oh. including all. Class, American classical music, you know, if you go, Copland, Bernstein, Gershwin, even if you look at sure. like Barber and like very even um, Steve Reich, I would say, and Philip Glass, that all those, a lot of minimalism is based, like there's a lot of interval patterns and just that sense of repetition and the sense of uh, process, um, I actually think is also baked into the blues. I find that to be a, a particularly... I think of the blues as America's classical music, <laughs> like more so than yeah. jazz yeah. specifically. You know what I mean? Like the blues is where it is like the birthplace of, yeah. a, of a lot of our music. That's but, the heart of it. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's where jazz came from. The whole uh, idea of groove and the, that, uh, the strength of groove that you hear in minimalism, uh, I got to think that had a lot, of, uh, a lot of influence from
1: right from um,
0: musical culture.
1: There's um, there's part of I teach this class uh, called cultural equity and performance practice, which is really a comp- complicated yes. title. Yeah. But the purpose is for me what that means is the performance practice of the blues. So it's like something I've studied to like try to kind of like your strum. It's like a whole technique to sound blues like. It's not something that I just. I remember telling one of my mentors that, and she and they said. Oh, it must be really hard to teach that. Isn't that kind of just innate? And I was like, well, so is Mozart. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it. I, there, I personally, I think there is a performance practice to that music. It's something that we both can learn and and imbue within ourselves. It's not necessarily without appropriating, you know, because it's like this sound that we all have, like in our ears and in our souls. um Anyway, yeah, sorry, just going off. I was,
0: I'm glad you're talking about that because I was very curious about that. I was gonna ask you about it. Um, When I saw that performance practice, I was wondering whether you were talking about the performing situation like, uh, Mm. you know, a less formal situation as as, uh, compared to a concert hall formality Mm. as opposed to like a jazz club informality where people are speaking you know uh, responding vocally to what's happening on stage as opposed to not Yeah, it's, it's,
1: like that. it's all of that actually i remember now you were referring to minimalism and the impact of the black experience on what that might have been and some of the some of the music that i bring into that class is is um the 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 field hollers the um the uh work songs you know when people are on the chain gang and that music was very necessarily repetitive, mm-hmm. but it's so vital that with every ever repetition, it just becomes more energetic. Yeah, um, which is not necessarily the point of minimalism, but it it is it's definitely in there somewhere. Um, that also um, influences uh, is the the setting, as you just said, because you know the chain gang. I would say is high art, personally. <laughs> like to to accomplish that sound is like really really har- artful yeah and it emerges from that setting so to pull it out of the setting and then put it onto a concert stage actually defeats you're doing something to that music in a way yeah also so so something the question is all right what do you want to do to that music and that's that's um what i ask my students quite a lot and How do you bring something from over there to the stage? Why? What does it mean to you? All that kind of thing. Um, And then how do you speak on it from your soul so that it doesn't sound like you're stealing somebody else's stuff? And you you bring them recognition. You talk about um, all the people that, that have brought you to where you are.
0: Yeah. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Man, they didn't have that at Juilliard when I was there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I I was really thinking about it. I was listening to so much of your music in the last week and um, uh, public quartet stuff, and man, I just kept coming back to... Man, if this was what new music was doing back in the 70s when I was at Juilliard mm. um, in ancient history, it was so different. The new music world was so academic and dry um, at that point. You know, not, not to, to dis-academic sort of mid-century modernism and all of that kind of stuff, but it wasn't my jam. And mm-hmm. I was not digging it. And even though I had been composing since I was a, a kid, I was very turned off to it. And because that was the situation, I took a a huge, hard left turn into rock and roll. Mm. And I was like, no, I want to, you know, this speaks to me because it's direct, it's soulful, it's Mm. impactful, it's immediate. It has all of that stuff that I love in classical music um, that I wasn't finding in the new music world. And now, you know, I I see folks like you and, and quartets like Public and serious and all you know so many friends of mine who are doing new music now that's so closely tied to popular music and to
1: what i love in pop music uh and i don't know well i'm glad that it happened exactly the way it happened because i mean i'm just seeing the poster behind you and i remember um I remember watching that video of you over it, you know, with the LA Phil, yeah. and listening to that electric violin, and be like, "Oh, this is it!" I was like at Eastman, and I was listening to. It. I was like, "This is awesome!" Oh, thank and you. Um, and also those your solo box stuff, right? I'm I'm very I'm sorry for your pain, and I'm very happy for it because <laughs> it, it <laughs> because it uh, <laughs> it influenced me deeply to to pursue as an option. You know, your that dis that. Um, dissatisfaction caused you to really yeah. find something awesome and it helped me to know that it was possible. And, you know, I, you know, there's, I feel bad for all the, you know, well, I don't feel, I don't want to say I feel bad for all the kids listening to my music, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I just, think, I can't tell, I am not trying to, my, my music, I'm not trying to make for, it's purely, ex, I would call my music like expressionism, it is actually expressionism. Like, I'm not trying to do it for anybody other than myself, really. Like, this, the studio that I'm in right now, you know, this is where I just compose everything. I'm just in my little cave, you know. Yep. The first album that came out in 2021 that was Grammy nominated, it was the first thing I ever recorded. I was in, my, I didn't even have a studio. I was, my, my girlfriend was, watched me, I was on this like little chair, because it was the only chair that would like it was actually shorter than my <laughs> piano bench and I had the piano on the piano bench and I was stuck in the corner and I had my DPA like hanging off of a music yep. stand and my computer and man, was my computer was so old it was hissing I couldn't put enough <laughs> sheets on top of it to stop the hiss from getting to the DPA was specifically designed to pick up hiss and right. then and then the computer would overheat so then everything was exploding you know and um oh my gosh I mean, I just, I just, I just, despite all that stuff, I just felt the need to compose. And, um, the point is not, was I've never, I don't think of myself as busting any genres. I just think of myself as I need to get this like musical energy out and you know, it's lucky that, that people are open to it. Yeah.
0: Curtis is talking about his first record called Of Color, which is an amazing recording. Um, but again, what uh, what I was was talking about before this, I will say genre. I know you weren't thinking of it that way, but just all this uh, free um, borrowing of ideas and thoughts, and and knowing your background, your dad Bob Stewart, a jazz tuba player, great uh, guy, well known guy on the scene. Your mom, uh, Electra Curtis who was a, a fantastic violinist and also somebody who was you know in between the cracks of of genre labels and didn't mm-hmm. care it seems i i didn't know her personally although i do think i i met her in new york at oh wow i met in new bet. york all through the 80s yeah wow i'm pretty wow. sure i'm pretty sure we were on a gig together because
1: she's not the kind of person
0: that you forget and and a name like Alexa, <laughs> yeah, she was
1: kind of wild <laughs> yeah yeah actually but i mean that her music was in the cracks because that's where her life took her you know sure yeah. her mom was an opera singer and so she her she she would tell me always that she tried to capture her mom's voice in her in her violin playing yeah she went to the sibelius academy in europe and then met my dad who was this kind of like free jazz tuba person Then she was swept up in that. Yeah. Um, they did, like, these free improvised things. And so she was bringing her classical and this free thing together. And she used to hang out with, like, these Roma people outside of the town of, of where she grew up, Warsaw. And so yeah. she's Greek. She's Greek of heritage, but born and raised in Poland. So she just brought—she just decided to bring her whole self to her music. Yep. Um, and we are each in the cracks. There's no one person— that's not in some crack or another. Exactly. And she, yeah. I, I think based based on her bravery and her ability to just be herself, I just was like, that's just what art. That's what artists do. Yeah. And so I think I've I've always been kind of basing my model off of her, and my dad is um, he's just like a ma- I mean, he's a master of the tuba. He, the tuba is such a wa- like beastly instrument, and he he's been able to hone that thing in terms of endurance, the sound production. Uh, the concept of how the tuba can reclaim its place in a jazz setting um so yeah. between those from that technical and kind of cultural um ownership from the two of them i i had these pretty amazing role models uh and i'm i'm doing my best <laughs> i'm doing my best to to yeah. to catch up to them
0: yeah man well it's so clearly reflected in your whole musical ethos you know your whole approach uh, mm. And listening to your stuff, I was reminded, um, of my, my friend and I, the guy who I consider my mentor, Terry Riley. Mm. Um, and not because of, uh, any sort of outward similarity really, you know, uh, uh musically, but because Terry modeled for me what I, I think a composer should be, which is, um, absolutely free, just mm. free as a bird. He, you know, well known as, as being a minimalist, but, you know, left that behind pretty early on and just explored Indian music, jazz. We play, you know, mm. we get when we get together, play jazz, just standards um, mm. and and classical music, um, you know, just sort of he'll put in sort of anachronistic classical throwbacks and it doesn't matter to him i mean he's terry Riley. he should you would think he would be maybe a little concerned about you know people thinking you know what is he right you know what you know what are you putting out you're going to do this is it this or that and he just mashes it together right uh, however he pleases just with that total freedom and lack of ego which i also think is wonderful aspect in your music that it's just it's not always just you know polished to the point where it's you know like oh it's a vanity, like with a sense of vanity it's got all of that reality and grit and guts and soul that comes from knowing when to to leave leave stuff so that people can enter you know what i mean right into that
1: world and that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah, I have my grit scale. I have to <laughs> yeah. measure all my recordings. Like, ah, oh, maybe we're a little off the off the charts with the grit scale. I, mean, I probably <laughs> well, should do I another take. Well, wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> no, I was just I was just reflecting on Terry Riley for a second because I I saw Kronos play yeah. one of his more recent pieces in Amsterdam, and it's true. There's something very kind of di- like down to earth and. Um, I don't want to say. I I mean, I, I, simple, but in a way that it's like I'm just speaking to you, and we're just saying, we're just talking, human. and we're having a good human, simple, like we're just talking. And but it, it the, the music the music definitely goes wherever it wants to go. Yeah. Um. And it was so cool because Kronos he asked them to like talk during the piece, just stream of consciousness. Wow. And it it's exactly that. Yeah. And so I think there's there's something that he's capturing that truly is of of that human whatever human experience i mean that's such a vague generic word to use but um i don't know I, yeah i i appreciate terry Riley more and more as as i get to know more of his works and I'll, as i've s- seen his works incorporated in more people's uh repertoire and yeah yeah
0: because you know i don't it's not about being perfect it's about being a person
1: mm-hmm and,
0: you know, that was something that, that he really taught me. And I think if I'm not, if I, if I can put words into your mouth, I think that's maybe something that, you know, your parents really modeled for you uh, in a really successful way.
1: Yeah. And also the opposite, which is like, her. Like, I remember <laughs> playing a concert, and my mom was like, I was so happy. I'd worked so hard on this thing. And she was like, wow, Curtis, good job. You were almost first rate. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it's both, you know what I mean? It's like a high-level uh, expectation of excellence, quote-unquote, but right. like a different kind of excellence. I think they were both really right. interested in a self-defined, energetic, innovative type of excellence, um, not yep. necessarily a, quote-unquote, perfection... Perfect, yeah. Uh, whatever that means. and Another kind of perfect... Yep.
0: Um, yep. Yeah, well, perfection is a funny thing, because for Terry, it wasn't perfect until you let the humanity in. You know? Right, right, exactly. So, it, it, it's a funny word. Okay, so I'm going to get back to your bio. Oh,
1: okay, right. here we go. <laughs> because, We're
0: um, back, okay. We only... Yeah. We only got like one... Yeah, we're only one, one sentence you know, in. Oh, no, man, this is a whole
1: interview's <laughs> worth of bio. This is great. I, I, love you, how you, right? I love how you said that I, would, I, I do things without ego, because now we're just talking about my bio for the whole, <laughs> for the <Yeah>. whole
0: show. <laughs> it's going to be the, the sort of format of this. We're going like, to just like do little <laughs> tracks, and each track's going to be a point of your bio.
1: Nice. Perfect. Perfect. So
0: congrats, by the way, on the new record, just got a Grammy nomination for nice, Of Love, uh, and I'd like you to speak about that in a minute, but okay. I'm just gonna cycle, circle around back to, to the bio. Um, artistic director, uh, newly mm. appointed of the American Composer Orchestra. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big deal uh, in the new music world and uh, an incredible responsibility, uh, uh, a real honor, I think. Um, Juilliard professor, as we were mm-hmm. talking about, teaching uh also you teach improvised chamber music if
1: I'm improvised chamber right. music yep yep people like making their own theme and variations on things and i have this one kid improvising around a box sonata and yeah it's fun and then there's this other kid who's just adding ornaments to a his uh his mozart clarinet quintet so it's it's a range of what improvisation can be
0: so amazing that this is not only tolerated begrudgingly at juilliard which it was not when I was there at all. Wow. Uh, but it's a class. It's actually a class. So mm-hmm. um, the world has
1: definitely... You mean when you say not tolerated begrudgingly, you mean you, when you, you went to the practice room and some you would do that and then somebody would be like, no, don't do... Because I remember my yeah. dad, he, he told me that when he went to a certain conservatory, he was studying trumpet and then he'd like maybe start improvising a little and somebody would literally knock on his door Yeah. and be like, you can't do that. Yeah, that's. I just think that's so crazy. It's wild. Yeah. No. Uh,
0: you know. I mean, there are certain things you don't mess with, and Bach was one of them. Not as Juilliard. It was really a very purist kind of vibe back then, which is probably why you know I, why I I personally had to become so rebellious to to get a, a, away from it. Uh, it's kind of nice now. You can just kind of step over to the side and do your thing, and you don't have to like completely leave the school, and
1: you know. Yeah. I mean, the inside, I mean, within the school is still, I think they, it's maintained a certain conservative thing about it. I can't tell exactly how or why, because it's very much inter There's a lot of new music happening at the school. Um, they have the, a class yeah. like this. They have a class for movement. I think movement for, um, ah, I don't, I can't speak to exactly what the class is called, but I think it's. Something about movement and composers and, like, combining dancers with composition and, like, these cross uh, things. And so there's a lot of that happening, but it it is maybe not necessarily as – it's still not as close to the core curriculum as I can – I could imagine. Yeah. But I think that's why – that's why it's Juilliard, and it's okay. It's a cons- that's why it's called the conservatory. A conservatory. <laughs> exactly. You know, the point is, you know, <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah.
0: One other very interesting point in your bio uh, that I would like to bring out is that after going to LaGuardia High School for, the, for uh, music and art, I believe is what it's called, right, mm-hmm. uh, in New York, you became a teacher there. You got your music ed degree mm-hmm. from Lehman and went and taught there for 10 years. Uh, and I know there's a lot of string teachers out there who can relate to that, and that, you know, uh, is an amazing experience for any musician, I think, to really understand how music is learned, how kids process music and come up with their own stuff, and uh, it's just a, a, just a very cool thing. I was wondering what you, uh,
1: what you thought of those 10 years teaching that. Yeah, my, so yeah, I went there, I taught there, my dad taught there. um, Oh, no way, I did not know that. Yeah. And so. Wow. You know, I think they taught, they taught, taught me, I hope, as much as I taught them. I mean, well, I hope I taught them, but (laughs) um, I, I learned so much about just what raw musical energy. Yeah. Is worth. Yep. Because yes. there were so many performances that they um, had, and I am I, I'm, I'm purposely avoiding the word talent, you know, um, because I think people see talent as like you know oh you can play a, paganini caprice at age nine or something, right? And that that is de- obvious, definitely talent, but I think, I just I really mean like musical energy, like when you pick up that instrument and you want to play it so badly. Yeah. And you you bring that, and it, and you have a feeling for the music that is so specific, and you just give it, and you have this feeling of sharing when you're, when you're performing, yeah, uh, and it just created such powerful uh, performance experiences between as kids were playing for kids, you know, and even as you know, musicians would come and come hear the kids play. Uh, I think it helped me really value that, and then to figure out how to teach so that you can add like an extreme um, discipline without eating into that yeah. that musical just that's, ferocity or whatever. However, yes. how, you know, yeah. And so I think that's and I and then how to apply that to myself. I think that was the, and as I was applying it to myself, it, it helped me to have even more. Um, empathy and 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 uh, patience uh, for them, and then it would it was just like a circle. So it was a self feeding circle. Having to leave leave I, the only reason I left is because you know I was starting to get enough gigs with Public Quartet that I couldn't. Yeah, I I had to be gone too much. So it was really sad. It was kind of sad. Like I, I told the kids that I was leaving and then they were like, there was one girl that like got up, on stood up on a chair and screamed at me. She was like, <laughs> you are not allowed to leave. No one says you could go. Um, That's awesome. It was pretty, I mean, that was very humbling. I didn't, I, you know, high school kids, you don't know what they're feeling. And yeah. uh, right at that moment, they, they let me know. And I, uh, yeah, it was really, really beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, what I love about kids is that, you know, because a lot of them don't know yet, like, what the rules are in music. Mm. So they will just, like, mash shit together and, mm. like, you know, just do this to that and take this and do it like that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's, yeah. what, that's what Terry right. Riley does, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you guys are totally being doing the musical thing, which is using your imagination and
1: enthusiasm, you know. And invention, and it's like a sense of invention. Like there's a brilliance to. I like how you said that, which is you know not just like throw it together. Like do this specific thing to that specific other thing, and oh, what happens when we try this? And then and we put this over this other thing. Like I think yeah. there's like a certain experimentation and and brilliance and specificity, and you know you're you're really trying to make something that feels like that really feels like something. It's not just kind of haphazard, which is, I think, what a lot of people, the, the more, I think, a lot of conservative types hear music that is quote-unquote creative, and they're like, oh, it's just, oh, yeah, good job, you're being creative. But there's so much, like, intense experimentation that goes into making that music happen. Um, yeah. I, the way I would teach my theory, I would teach all these music theory classes, and it basically was, like, an intense uh sports game it was like a, a stadium it was like Roman uh what are they what did the Romans make people oh, it was like a glad it was like gladiators in my theory class <laughs> because basically the <laughs> the the circle of fifths was the arena and uh the everything they had to do was like identified based on the circle of fifths and like you know either whether it was cores or or whatever intervals or secondary dominance and, and they would set their own speed trial. So like they would be they'd all be in groups and then they would help each other learn and then they'd come up and then we'd time them. And then the person with the fastest time would uh set that would be the bar. And then the next week everybody that's how they got graded. That was their bar. No kidding. And they had to perform. That's awesome. And then they would challenge me and I'd I'd have to and there was always one kid that would do it faster than me. So then the whole <laughs> class would freak out <laughs> and I would, you know, and uh, it was great. I mean, it was like cutting. It was like, you know, yeah. it was like yeah. really like... And then I'd have them... I'd, I'd uh, teach them all everything through composition. So if they had to learn Roman numerals, like if they're learning about subdominance, we, I would say, okay, we're going to compose a, a chord progression with subdominance, and then I'd teach them how to write melodies on top of that, using chord tones, et cetera. And, um, and that's how they would learn about like passing tones and appoggiaturas and all those things so there was a mixture of um i hate for some reason i hate the word creativity but it is creativity <laughs> it's uh, like it's like because for me it's more like oh here are options and let's play with these things that are already there we're not actually creating anything right we're just in Re- inventing recombining um, and yeah yeah recombining and then seeing how it feels and go go sharpen that um, but we would have a great time in those classes, and anyway, yeah. I don't think I would have survived as a kid in my own class. <laughs> I think I would have, I would have crumpled. <laughs> but, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I doubt
0: it. I doubt it, man. I think it would have spoken to you. I think you would have, you would have probably would have loved, would have loved your class.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, one one thing that I I really appreciate about. The way a lot of kids approach music is the inventiveness uh, it, that's in the hip hop world mm. um, that I did not realize was there. Mm. So it wasn't until my kids really turned me on to a lot of rappers and hip hop and stuff like that, and I and and told me what to listen for. Mm. You know, well check out this, and then. Uh, my son started making beats and was doing stuff like with Fruity Loops and, and getting into different beat producers and knowing this guy and West Side Gun uses this guy and all that, <laughs> whatever, um, right? And and I'm watching what he's doing in Fruity Loops, and I'm going, you can't do that. He's mm. like, yeah, you can just put this plug in and you just crank this knob and it does that. And I'm like, you know, and just having partly not knowing the rules is, is just such a wonderful freeing thing mm. because, you know, it's just like, it's all paint and you can just combine them and paint whatever you like, mm. whatever you hear. Uh, and I think kids, there's so much of that in the hip hop world where things are just done weird. They'll speed up their vocals. You know, I mean, even guys like Kendrick Lamar, right. and do, they'll speed their vocals way up. I'm like, why is he doing that? It sounds so weird. And my son's like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> it's like, kind of cool. Like, That's oh, okay, right? <laughs> That's funny. I get it. It's only weird if you expect it to be
1: right. This. If the expectations are set right. Yeah. Well, I I think I think of that as a teaching technique, which I think a lot of teachers. I I argue with some teachers about this, which is um, how much you explain to someone before you ask them to do something new, mm. like like to let them experience the thing without any with with minimal expectation you know is is important because that's when you get that moment of like there are no rules i have enough ability to start but i don't have the ability to finish and then you realize what things you need to learn yeah and therefore, I need to be taught something, as opposed to yeah. "here are the rules, right. here's everything laid out in front of you, execute, check off all the boxes." There's no, there's no energy there, you know. And it's it's like, um, right? And I love that. That's I mean, that was my experience with recording. Honestly, I mean, there, ah, God, there's so much I had to do, like with of power that, yeah. I, and now, and now I'm learning. It's like I realized that I'd really just had the gain knob too low. That's really what the problem was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the, the gain was so low over on my thing that. I, when I got into Ableton, I had to crank it so hard that you could hear every ah the hiss was heavy. the noise floor right, right right you could you could hear the noise floor you could hear the noise basement you could hear the noise <laughs> like mantle.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you're leading into this because I wanted to ask you about your production on on the stuff, it is especially on all of them, but especially on. It seems like they're getting a, a little more sophisticated gear wise or technique-wise, recording technique-wise, uh, and I've loved, you know, all kinds of cool plugins, sounds like happening, as well as performance um, techniques. Um, just mm-hmm. curious, uh, just a little getting in the weeds here for a quick sec, uh, what um, software were you doing that in? Were you doing it in Ableton? Were you doing it in Logic, Pro Tools?
1: Yeah, that's that's all Ableton. I just have my little Claret 4 uh-huh yep whatever focus right and then I'm, I'm just going in with with these things yeah with these two actually for most of, of love it was one road road was it nt5 yeah the ribbon um and then halfway through i realized if i got two and then put them on the next then suddenly it sounds yeah. much better so some tracks sound <laughs> better <laughs> than others <Yep>. and then <laughs> um most of what i'm doing is not through a pl- actually through there i don't really use any plugins it's like um uh, like a Various reverbs. I do a lot of the like pitch. Sh- I like in the in the actual clip. I pitch things up or uh-huh. down, and then either repeat or reverse them. But that's it. I don't really yeah. use plugins, other than like you know reverb and compression and and EQ. Those right. are like the three. But most everything else is um, either me just pitching things up or slow or like slowing them yeah. down, and then cutting them up into like a, a bajillion. tracks that um that make it a little more uh, and then changing the the panning stereo field so things are like moving around um but yeah i'm learning i'm getting better at it it's 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 a lot well
0: you uh, get back to your bio um circling back around yes (laughs) you do have a mathematics degree if i am not mistaken
1: that's right yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know how, when that happened, but... Yeah. Uh,
0: um, what, were, what were you thinking? And what what was the attraction with mathematics?
1: Um, well, I was always pretty good at math in school. Like, I just got it. Like, I I didn't really have to study. I yep. just did it. Um, so, like, at high school level. Then I got to college, and it, math kicked my butt. I was... It's so difficult. The way... speak Actually, that's where I kind of learned about that teaching technique, because they really just... They hand you a textbook the professor tells you something, they talk through this massive amount of info in one session, and then they give you the textbook, and then they're like, solve these three questions by by next week. And it's like, and then one panic attack later, maybe I'll get two and a half questions, you know, and then they really just throw you out there um, to figure things out. Like, math is an extremely... Um, I would call math even more creative, because there's like these things that you... You just have to break things in ways that they weren't meant yeah. to be broken. Like there's ideas that you're, you're you have to just understand how you can reorganize these ideas that not, like nothing exists. It's not in reality. You're not touching it. You're not. You don't have any muscle memory. You're not using your ears. You're just mentally uh, manipulating this information. Yeah. And so um, it was really helpful for my for my brain muscle. But I, I don't think I was. I was not as much of a natural when I was in school. Uh, I, I was studying at Eastman and at the University of Rochester at the same time, and so right. I for math. And uh, I was originally going to try to do engineering and music, uh, but then I realized it wasn't going to. For some reason, I was bent on being done in four years, so I just switched <laughs> to math only.
0: Interesting. i was just curious if you had if you were like com- you know contemplating another you know, uh, another world, another business, like engineering or or something like that at some point, or architecture or something.
1: I think my dad, my dad was very, is very pragmatic. And so he was like, you don't need a, you don't need a degree to, you don't need a degree to have somebody to know that you could play. (laughs) So, but you better get a degree because people can get, you know, so you can get a job. And so that's what I did, you know. My mom, on the other hand, was very loved the idea of me studying music, and but I don't know that I was even that passionate about music when I got into college. You know, I I think I just happened to be pretty good at that too, and I just happened to get in. You know, like I just it was very much less intentional at that point. But once I got into, once I was at school, I fo- I started a band. We were, like, improvising. We were composing together. Um, I did all the new music uh, groups, like Osea at Eastman, and I, and, you know, and I, like, one of my first performances was in in the, like, natural, the, the park, the na- the state park, and we were playing this guy Robert Morris's music and making the score look like bubbles and, like, lines and dashes. It was, like, all these, yeah. this graphic score mixed with no- notated, and... It would seem like I knew exactly what I was doing because everything I was doing was very directed towards new music, improvisation, you know, and that. But I was just kind of feeling my way through it. I didn't I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> but it. It. anyway, in, in retrospect, it seems like it yeah. was
0: like a direct line. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Focused like it was focused. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess that's what all the college parties will do. They'll help you forget the, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> they'll help you forget all the stuff that didn't, turn, that didn't work out. Right.
0: <laughs> One thing I've been uh, wanting to ask you for a long time, because you, you're so free and wide ranging with, you know, musically, uh, is it possible that you never played electric violin? Because I've only seen you play an acoustic.
1: It's possible. I don't think I have. Well, I might have played it, but not, like, for real. Nope. I don't. What drew you to electric violin? Just the rock yes. the rock aspect? Or yeah. was it specifically that instrument? Oh, okay.
0: It was basically trying to sound like a guitar, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could have played guitar, I might have a- actually just switched over to guitar. But... I I would be one of a million mediocre guitar players if I tried to teach myself guitar, you know. (laughs) Coming out of Juilliard, you know. Um, Right. But I figured, hey, I can play the violin pretty well. Um, What about doing with the violin what they did with the guitar? Electrify it, become the first rock star of the electric violin. That was my goal. So, uh, really, I was after a guitar sound.
1: So. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I got afraid of the pedals because I, I got, like, a delay, a sub-bass and a something else, a chorus pedal. And I was, like, messing with them and I realized, I was like... This was before that Keith McMillan foot pedal thing yeah, where so you can, I, like, so, literally so have, change everything with your feet. you got the soft stick. I don't use... I don't I use it for so little. I mean, I just hit on-off. That's all that is. It's not... It has no... I'm really using yeah. 1% of its capability. Um, but, um... I just got intimidated by the foot pedals, I think, and so I was just like, "Well, let me just figure out how to do all this stuff acoustically with the with the sound acoustically." Yeah, yeah. and also, you know, carrying gear carrying gear <laughs> is not fun. <laughs> gear you made is like, the go.
0: right choice there, my friend. Holy cow!
1: <laughs> the gear,
0: not just the carrying around, <laughs> hauling around part, but the money pit that just. Every right. you know, time there's a new pedal and, the you know, every five years the state <laughs> of the art is completely changed.
1: Yeah.
0: And, you you uh, know who has a
1: great compact setup is a Zach Brock. Have you seen yeah. his
0: thing? What is he using now?
1: Yeah, it's like really just like, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But I just remember seeing him whip it out. It was like, boop. It was like in a yeah. box. It's the Boom. fly rig. He just plugged in three things. Yep. Yeah, right. Yep. The fly That's rig. It. That's yeah. what I got. I got
0: like the big setup here in my studio. But... For on the road, I got the little HX Stomp and Boomerang, and just fits on a in a little case. Boop. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and you've never played a, a five string. Do you have a five Mm-mm. string? Mm. Man, I can't wait for that to happen.
1: I sure. I guess I'm conserv. I guess that's how I'm conservative, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> um.
0: I was just curious because uh, you know cool. it just seems like um, something that that you would kill on. You know. all right well and you know i want to get back to this thing you at one point you were talking about the grit and um i was listening to i forget which track it was uh the other day and i'm like yeah i'm listening to you and i'm just like as i'm listening i'm going yeah because i'm hearing all of that (laughs) you know uh, uh, not just uh, the grit and the groove and all of that stuff that I'm always trying to teach string you know young string players that it's okay to do and if the classical players are like, mm. no, it's not pretty and I'm like, no, it's not pretty. that's the whole point. No, and, it's right you know
1: right.
0: And, uh, and and what are your thoughts about about that? I mean how do you approach that when you're when you're playing on a you know, to a classical audience who's expecting mm-hmm. a string quartet to sound all pretty, and you guys are playing a, you know, a Tina Turner, um, smacking
1: our tune. yeah, we're smacking the strings and slapping. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I think, well, there's always the trust building that you have. At, you know, in a concert, you can start with something that is less so, or you start with something that's so dope <laughs> and also so smacking and scratchy that yeah. you just set reorganize the expectations. Right, right. You know. Um, so there's that, and then uh, I, I mean personally, and just in terms of t- the approach to that, it's like I feel like um, if you think of if you think of the instrument as a drum, I think that's the that's yeah. the like it, it is a rhythmic instrument, and so the sustain is more like the ring of a drum, you know, right? Like if you hit a cymbal, it's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like there's always that and to capture that with the bow is rhythmic and energetic. It's not just noise. It's a capturing. It's a real capturing of both sound and energy. Yeah. And that like when you hit like the smack of a snare, that it requires that crunch to actually have enough rhythmic energy. And if you can kind of like, not you, but if one lets go of, just remove yourself from the melodic element for a second and think of yourself as a percussion, as the percussion section. Um, And then you, you get a really solid sense of that. And then you enter the harmonic area next actually is what I would say. And so then you have all these like colors and, you know, contact point, vibrato shades to really bring out the harmonic color. And then after all of that, there's like the melodic shape that is very easy to shape, but then that's when it starts to sound "quote unquote" pretty or not pretty. Right. Um, and so, I think, I think a lot of players think of melody first, um, and I think I'm I'm just trying to jump into rhythm rhythm first. I think I read that I got that idea from a Pablo the Pablo Casals book. Oh yeah. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah he he was all about just the rhythm and a and somehow the the flow of time and all that type of thing. So i forgot about Um, that yeah i took his idea to an extreme maybe but (laughs) but uh (laughs) cool um, cool and also like when you listen to stuff like those um the chain gang music yeah it's so i can listen to that for a really long time and, and they're singing the similar notes they're singing similar rhythms but the articulation is constantly shifting it's there's emphasis on different beats. Yes. There's a sense of call and response, and that's the energy that I'm trying to find everywhere. Yes. Um, so that things can actually stay pretty, s- like buoyant, like as in they're not. There's not these wild changes happening all the time, but there's this internal power and strength, yes. energy. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. This is such a energy. good, such a good point, and something that um, I. I talk about a lot with students, the idea that, because I, I deal with so many classical string players who I'm trying to sort of um, teach how to groove, right. and I have to make a point that there's, um, for classical players who think that groove and uh, is, is mechanical and repetitious, and that I can't mm. just play the same thing over and over again, it's gonna be boring and i'm like yes it will mm. be boring you don't play it like exactly the same way every time there's beauty in repetition but not in exact repetition and this idea that you can take a groove and just be you know like james brown's band can be grooving for 15 minutes on you know where the guitar player is literally playing two notes da 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 it Right, and you can listen to that for 15 minutes and not stop dancing because the energy just f- keeps you floating. And what, how, how, you know, so I, I get classical players to listen to that and go, look, that is not mechanical. It's not boring. Why, what are they doing? What is going on here?
1: Right, I mean, it's it, I think of it as like, actually like a groove that you're deepening yeah. within yourself. Nice. So you're playing this thing and you're actually deepening the, nice. this feeling. Yeah, and it's actually very meditative. I yes. find it to be like spiritual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very and physical. rich and deep. Like you're not and physical. It's not just re- repetition of something exact, it's like a, you said, robotic.
0: It's a very very physical act, and I think that's why it's very difficult for a lot of classical. String players, because we are not taught how to be in touch with our—at least when I was there—we're um, not taught how to be in touch with our bodies in any way other than sort of this kind of expressive swinging about. Right. Um, but there was never encouragement to to just fall into the groove and let your body dance and. Uh, nice. So much of music is, that's one of the most basic parts of our humanity is the way our bodies physically work as human beings. And it's such an important part of so many uh, musical cultures around the world and folk cultures. And yet classical music, it's such this apex of our musical culture. Uh, it ignores that. String players are are sort of, almost intentionally turning a blind eye to what their bodies want or telling them to do do you ever feel that or is
1: that just me mm. oh yeah i used to forget that there was anything that existed below my shoulders <laughs> when i first started playing and actually i look back on some of my student like you know audition tapes and i'm like up here like you can see and all my teachers were trying to tell me yeah. not to do that like somehow oh really make it um, and it wasn't until I started just putting the instrument down and actually dancing to the music yeah. in a way that I wanted to hear it yeah. with, with whatever part, however I wanted to move and then actually let that enter my, my, my physicality as I'm playing. Yeah. That was, There was also this Menuhin um, video that I saw where he, he drapes himself like this and he starts like wagging until he's like, yeah, that's how you play violin. And so it's cool. like I was like whoa that's crazy. <laughs> so I so I thought that was crazy because then when if you're dancing and you're doing all this it's like yes that is. Yeah. And then I had another teacher uh, Barry Schiffman up at Banff and he's like yeah playing violin is like it's like being a walrus. You just kind of <laughs> you just kind of play <laughs>
0: throw um, your arms around.
1: Because then you're not holding. it. I think that's the yeah. difference because I think we're taught to be yeah. Um and I think it that that physical box that we've put ourselves in stops us from disconnects us actively yeah. disconnects us yes. from imagining the music physically below your below your yeah. collarbone. Yeah. Video recording um myself helps a lot. Like yeah. if I learn something and then I videotape myself playing it, I can see some of my own hang ups. Like, oh I'm thinking about that spot a little too much. Oh I'm Yeah. A little tight. I'm, I'm afraid of this note. I can see it, even if I couldn't necessarily hear it. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like... Yeah. There is a psychological and also meditative and groove-based work that I think even even the way we practice doesn't really engage. You know? Yep. Because it's like, what is the... Everybody's trying to get you to hea- listen better. Right. Like, what is what is the sound? And so you're listening. I'm listening. And you're, you're like caught up in listening so much that you're yes. detached... Detaching yourself from the act of making the music, so it has to be both. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, well put.
1: Hi, (laughs) I'm Elektra Cortis.
0: also wanted to just ask you uh if you wanted to speak for a minute about uh of love which is the most recent record just got a grammy nom but i wanted you just to speak about it a little for our audience here why it's so such a special record and so meaningful to you
1: yeah so of love right i was i was my mom's caretaker for four years she she was a very vibrant person you know took great care of her health but she was stricken with um uh, glioblastoma, and so she was given a two-year... Um, she she was given two years to live, but she lasted for four. Wow. And so I was her caretaker, and so when I would... We'd hang out, and I'd take care of her, and and then I'd come into the caretaker's room and freak out. And so eventually I learned how to freak out by putting that energy into music. Um, and then after she passed, I inherited her apartment, which is the... This is the studio room that's that was her old apartment. And so that was just really hard because there was the, all these memories memories of being a caretaker and also these memories yeah. of my mom and her her both her illness and my the loving experiences that I had with her and so i would just hit record and then stuff would come out yeah. and then i would craft that into compositions so it truly is a it's like a rec, like a requiem in a way or it's just like a it's a true expression of of that grief, but it also has songs that, like she taught me, like uh, Thalassaki Mu, This, this Greek. There was one day I picked up a. I was going through all her stuff as I was like trying to move in and all that to this apartment, and then, um, I found this book of Greek folk songs, and I started playing through them, thinking, "Let me just use this moment to kind of remember her." And there was this one song that I picked up. I had no clue why I knew it. It was like almost like it was playing me. Yeah. And that was thalasakimu mu and so. I turned that into this whole violin piece and, um, the whole, every, every track on the album has, has a, has a story like that. It's yeah. either connected to a very specific moment with her or, and the the general idea of the album is, um, there's, there's a, there's an autobiography that she had created, like a video biography that she had created while she was living, obviously. Um, but, and so I used her voice, as kind of like the not the narrator, because there's not a story happening. But it's almost like, we're in this dream world. And I'm trying to remember her, I'm really trying to hold on to her memory. And then her voice comes in and says like some poignant, meaningful thing about music or about her time. Um, And so it's really about memory and, and the dream world versus what's what's real and how, how we try to hold on to those memories when, when people pass. So it's uh, you know light, light listening, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's such a beautiful. Record, it, was, man. it oh, thank you. Hi, <laughs> I'm Elektra Cortis. I am a violinist and a composer, and I'm Greek. Music in a new environment, completely new, everything new. The only thing I recognized was my violin case and the violin. Hi! <laughs> I'm Electra Curtis. It's like having a tree deeply rooted in the ground. So you always go back to folk music. Music is something that holds my life together yeah i put a put, i really did put my heart and soul into it when i like i don't you know people say that i like i remember when i when i clicked pause on my last little recording day and i, I was like oh i think this is done <laughs> and um i just it was a, an extremely emotional day just oh, because man. that was doing the record was was a way of me to like hold on yes. and yes being done with a record was yes. like, oh shit! But it was like I lost her again, you know. Yep. yep. So, it, yeah, it really is a. I'm just. I feel very great. It's weird to celebrate something that there's so much pain inside of. Um, but I am I'm really grateful that people that people are recognizing it that yeah. way. So yeah. Yep. That's that's the spiel. That's the spiel, I guess. Nah. But yeah, here we are.
0: And, and one more question before we get to our final. Um, not my gig segment. Uh, and that is, do you have any, are there projects, uh, co- upcoming, anything that you're working on that's on the drawing board right now that you're really excited about yes. or stuff, something coming up in the future?
1: Yeah. I just wrote a drum set concerto for a drum set and strings called drill. Um, and it's about, it's oh, like wow. taking drill rit- music rhythms, um, because I, we were thinking about the pandemic and how when we were outside dining, when outside dining came in New York, that was our one release. Yeah. And then when we were out there up in Inwood, New York, which is like almost the Bronx, we'd hear these motorcycles re- crash and run by and like all these like, like bangs and pops and, and then drill music would be playing. And we were like, ah, <laughs> very relaxed because it was, it was refuge from being stuck inside for the past few months, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so... I, but basically the concept is what happens when that music from the outside is brought into our walls kind of like you know like it's it's like my brahms hunting music or or like summer music you know, it's like right. the, the idea of this outside music being brought into the concert hall but 2023 nice so there's that i also did i did a recomposition of uh of 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 all these four seasons basically a futuristic version of it um kind of around climate change that's going to be happening with the Phoenix Symphony. And, uh, the idea is who, who will climate change, um, erase first? Um, and the, the, my first thought is the, the unhoused population. So kind of like the same with my piece embrace, I'm going to be working with, with shelters to, to interview people about how climate change has affected them, um, and how they anticipated affecting them, record those and have those, Have their voices triggered um, throughout the performance of the piece. Very cool.
0: Very cool. Always busy, man. That's so working, working hard. So fantastic, (laughs) creative. All right, and now as our final segment of the podcast, I do a little thing called "Not My Gig." I don't know if you've caught any of these, but it's basically a little trivia game that we do where I ask my guests three questions you get two okay. out of three right you win i don't you don't okay. win anything in particular you just win you get bragging you rights which win. are not
1: worth Got much it. at all you just win damn it no and, no uh, this is reminding of my music are, theory class tracy yes <laughs> <laughs> this is like full circle called not my gig
0: it's a takeoff on the uh, npr not my job Complete rip off of it um where I'm gonna ask you something you don't know anything about, I hope. So it makes it more fun, because then you gotta use your improv skills. So Curtis Stewart, founding member of the Public Quartet, we're gonna find out how much you know about the Public
1: Library. Ah, damn. Okay, good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So here we go, you ready for your first question?
1: As ready as I can be.
0: All right, the largest library in the world. Is A, the U.S. Library of Congress, B, the British Library,
1: or C, the Shanghai Library? Well, um, I'm going to go with the Shanghai Library, just because. It's a good guess. It's a good guess. More people, more books. It's actually the British Public Library. That's because they stole everybody else's information. <laughs> that's because the colonists oh, that's what, just That's what had they, were they, yeah, they were English. They were very cultured, and they stole the books. Yeah, they took all the books. They
0: appropriated books. <laughs> everybody's books. Okay. Awesome. Okay, we're going to call that right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> the British were wrong for doing it. All right. Question number two. Which of these items is not available to borrow from a public library? Mm. A, an air fryer. Huh. B, jumper cables.
1: Or C, condoms. Oh, from a public library, not available. I would, I would go and with. I the would f- say the
0: the keyword. The key word here is which is not available to borrow.
1: Oh, yeah, condoms. There you go.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. Right. Ew. You are correct.
0: <laughs> it is Thank condoms. You. You're just going to have to buy Yuck. your own.
1: <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> no borrowed condoms. Thank you. And your Nothings. third question. The New York Public <laughs> Library has two famous lions out front, Right, the statues, the lions out front, either side of the entrance. One of them is named Patience. Hmm. What is the name of the other lion? Is it A, Fortitude, B, Curiosity, or C, Simba? <laughs>
1: I'm going to go with curiosity, even though it's probably fortitude, but I would like for it to be curiosity.
0: I would have liked for it to be curiosity, too. That was my good fake. It is actually fortitude.
1: Yeah, see? So you're right. But it should have been curiosity, right? Yeah, <laughs> curiosity, come on. of a library.
0: Yeah, it should be no, what, what do you, do you need curiosity? fortitude That's... for? Like,
1: I'm going to read some books. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All this right, well. It is fun.
0: You got one of three, but, but there is an, there is an, an extra credit uh, question. So you can, uh, you can still win your second one you get this one right. Okay. Okay. Which of these classes is actually available at a public library? A, punk rock aerobics, where participants are encouraged to scream along with loud punk rock music while working out. Nice. B, adult coloring classes. Okay. Or... C, Super Smash
1: Brothers classes. I'm going to go with the adult coloring. Adult coloring is correct. (laughs) Yes, I win. It is actually available. Woo! (laughs) Although those other two, I mean, the the first one, it was so specific. I was like, that's got to be Tracy. That's got to be you.
0: (laughs) I was kind of curious because they're saying adult coloring book classes, and I'm going like, are they coloring adult themed? No, no, no. (laughs) No, just adults coloring. It's just, just adults coloring.
1: Adults. Nice. Yeah, it's very Nice sweet. and benign. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, okay. Hey, man, thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Curtis. Yes. Great to finally, finally chat. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on.